What up, what up, what up? Ashe family, what's going on everybody? Welcome to another episode of My Unapologetic Perspective here on the Mighty Motivation Network. This is the podcast where we give our point of view of controversial topics from my experience, black history, and our knowledge as African Americans. Black history presently lives in us so we can continue to excel into the future. It's one thing to know black history. It's another thing to take advantage of what the people in black history did for you. In the words of Malcolm X, there will come a time where black people will wake up and become intellectually independent enough to think for themselves. And now we are at that time. I am your host, Martre Baker-Stevens. And to the right of me is Shaquan Battle. Yep. And to the right of him is Jerome Battle. Suck. We appreciate all the love and support that we've been getting, whether it's on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube, or rather it's just in the personal conversations that we have. Uh, continue to go to YouTube, hit the subscribe button, hit the like button, Facebook, hit the share button, comment, um, all of those good things. Continue to support, continue to pass out this information to other people, and we continue to get the ball moving um, in kind of a uh, snowball effect that turns into an avalanche of black history and black knowledge. Um, how are y'all? Good. good. Everybody's good? Good. Good. Everybody uh, keep running them views up and comments. Facts. Keep making us go viral. Rather good or bad, we don't care. We like talk, I said, this we, is our perspective. We're talking about black history, mm-hmm. and it's still going on past the month of February. So y'all can argue about it. Y'all can agree about it. Just keep watching. Absolutely. Um, We're going to jump right into the conversation today. Let's, let's jump right in. Um, This is an important conversation because it's one of those things that um that we still see today actively today that is still really frowned upon um here in america um but when you see a lot of athletes stand up as we talked about on this podcast before for injustice um a lot of mainstream america try to say that they're following a trend mm-hmm. but from the black perspective it's never been a trend it's about African-Americans who've made it to a certain platform who once upon a time will look out their window and see these things, who once upon a time went to school and see these, seen these things in their projects and their neighborhoods, because most of the athletes that we've seen uh, rise to the national level come from poverty. They come from the projects. They come from injustice. They come from racial discrimination. So it's not a trend. It's something that that that's been embedded into them. And then when they get a platform to speak about it, to be able to be heard, they use it for those reasons. Um, And these are the things that are creating change within the world. So when you tell athletes to just shut up and dribble or to not talk about politics, that tries to rob the everyday person individual from their rights to be able to have that freedom of speech their rights to be able to to talk about the things that other people are talking about that you don't tell to shut up um, and create that change and be those influential leaders amongst the African-American community. Um, One instance that that happened that was very monumental was the Cleveland summit. Uh, The Cleveland summit happened after Muhammad Ali decided that he was not going to, um, approve of him being drafted into the Vietnam war and ultimately elected not to fight. And there were a group of athletes that were called, uh, organized by Jim Brown to try to really try to convince Ali to enlist, to enlist and go fight in the Vietnam war. Um, and ultimately they sat there for hours. People like Bill Russell, Walter Beach, Sid Williams, Jim Shorter, um, Bobby Mitchell, um, John Wooten, who was John Wooten is still important today. He helped incorporate the Rooney rule into the NFL. Um, and then you have Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Jim Brown, uh, were some of those main figures that were there. And after sitting there talking for hours, they realized and understood that Ali was sincere in his reasons to not fight in the Vietnam war. And again, he was sitting in there with some veterans that had fought and they argued and they, um, they ultimately came into an agreement that Ali was right in his stance and they supported him as other black athletes to say, 
Ali is right in what he's saying and we support him 100%. What are y'all thoughts about that Cleveland summit? I, I think when, when you talk about Muhammad Ali and, and his objective, which he used the conscientious objective in saying that um, that wasn't a black man's war to go fight that war. But more so, we talked about this before, is why would he stand up for a country that wouldn't stand up for him? Right. But to go a step further, and this is something that most people probably won't read, is prior to this draft, um, in order to go to the military, you had to pass a competency test. Yeah. That Muhammad Ali failed twice, at least twice. So what they did is they lowered the bar for the draft so that they could get more people yeah. in the draft. So Muhammad Ali's other explanation was if I wasn't good enough or smart enough to fight before, yeah. why all of a sudden am I good enough now? Mm-hmm. It's more so that you need the body not the man. Yeah. Right. So you don't need my mind. You just need the body. Yeah. You just need somebody to go out there and take bullets for you. Right. That's, mm-hmm. that's what you need ultimately. Mm-hmm. And I'm not that guy. So I think Muhammad Ali's way of thinking, because he admitted, I told y'all I was the greatest, not the smartest. Yeah. Right. So, but however, when you listen to him talk, he did not sound like a guy who was not educated, mm-hmm. at least through high school. Anyway, mm-hmm. he didn't sound like that. Um, but Muhammad Ali was adamant that he was not fighting for this country for that reason. Mm-hmm. And th- let's so people can understand this was before he converted to Islam. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people said, well, he didn't want to fight because he was Muslim. And that's, that's not, don't associate the two. Mm-hmm. All right. Because the two are not associated. So that's what I don't want people to do is think that Muslims can't be um, part of a military. That, that's not true. So, I think that's been some of the miscommunication as well. What are your thoughts? To the, the age that he took that stand and to know that you will lose, you know, your your uh your championship belt, you won't be able to fight for what was it, three years. To take that stand, to know what he will lose and still to take that stand, um that just shows that he believed in you know what this cut i mean I, I i was watching a video and he said when he came back from the olympics you know he had his medal on he went downtown in kentucky to uh I, i'm a uh gold medal winner i can go eat at any restaurant i want he goes there and they said we don't serve niggas and he said good cuz i don't eat them so <laughs> but just to take that stand at that age you know I, kareem was in that meeting and i think kareem was what 18 yeah, seventeen, he, something he, like he that. Was, he was super young. He he was just at UCLA. Yeah, yeah, because because he was still going by the name uh, Louis Lawson, 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 yeah. Lawson. Yeah. So to like I said, for them to be that age and to take that stand, like it's it's a repeat of what you're seeing today now. Absolutely, um, it definitely created that unity between athletes, no matter what sport you play, from football to basketball to boxing. It created that that union that we still see today amongst black athletes coming together. Because we saw it in the the Olympics when they, that same Olympics, when they tried to uh, deter some of the athletes from going and uh, participating in the Olympics. And when they had the opportunity to get on that gold medal stand, they put the fist in it. So, you know, but even, even in my time, the first time I actually witnessed it outside of Muhammad Ali was, you guys heard me talk about him, Chris Jackson, mm-hmm. um, who changed his name after being um, drafted the third overall pick. I think it was in 1990. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the third overall NBA pick. And in 1996, he can, in 1993, he converted to Islam and changed his name during the playoffs, mm-hmm. changed his name to Mahmoud, Mahmoud um, Rauf, mm-hmm. And, um, Doing the doing the uh, had was fasting, uh, doing Ramadan during the playoffs, mm-hmm. and caught a lot of flack. He lost a lot of weight. He wasn't able to perform um, the best of his ability. And in 1996, was the first athlete that I saw not stand for the national anthem mm-hmm. during a, a professional televised um, sporting event. Mm-hmm. 
So long before Kaepernick. Yeah. Um, so yeah, when you, when you just look at Kaepernick and um, LeBron James and Maya Moore, when you look at these athletes doing wonderful things, um, somebody paved the way for them, and right. these were individuals who who laid that groundwork during a time where racism and was really at its highest tension. You know That's what right. I mean? When you talk about um, Ali and Kareem and, and Jim Brown, you're talking about they're in the midst of um, even before the civil rights movement of, of racism that was happening with Jim Crow and, and right. all of these things. Um, but when you look at Ali, you know, Ali, the same as Dr. King is beloved now, but then he was, one of the most hated men in America, like Dr. King, Public you know, enemy number one yeah, in some uh, cases. white America really didn't care for Muhammad Ali at all. Um, but when he was younger, the Emmett Till photo really, really changed his mindset on, on the way he viewed America. Um, it, it really shocked him as a kid. Cause like other people that we talked about on this podcast, other kids looked at that picture and said, that could have been me. Mm-hmm. And, and, that affected them throughout the rest of their life. Um, but Ali in high school, we talk about the conversion to Islam, but even in high school, he wrote a paper on Elijah Muhammad and, and, and the nation of Islam. And when he was training in Miami for the fight with Sonny Liston, he was actually uh, walking and he spotted uh, Abdul Rahman. I believe his name is Rahman, mm-hmm. um, uh, also named Captain Sam outside of the mosque in Miami. And he was out there selling Muhammad Speaks. Well, Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay at the time, he was in love with this record by Louis X, known today as Louis Farrakhan, called the uh, A White Man's Heaven is the Black Man's Hell. Right. And he repeated one of the lines from, from that record. And the dude said, oh, man, you hip to the teachings. And Ali said, yeah, I'm hip. So he began to hang out with him a little bit. He took him to hear Elijah Muhammad speak, and there he meets Malcolm. Malcolm really helped um, Ali incorporate really the Islamic living, you know, the praying, the fasting, all of those things, the principles of Islam, rather than just proud to be black Islam, right? Um, But Ali, another thing that's not talked about, we, we see the documentaries of how Ali and Malcolm were friends and, and bonded well. No, this is true, but you also have to remember that Ali was friends with Dr. King as well. Right. Even though Dr. King denounced the Nation of Islam's teachings, he worked with Ali on some rallies in Kentucky to, uh, against uh, racial discrimination. Right. And their thing was, we're both brothers who are mm-hmm. oppressed and we're fighting for um, the freedom of African Americans. So they put that to the side, especially when um, Ali what, didn't want to fight in the Vietnam War. That's Dr. Right. King was anti-Vietnam War, and that was right up his alley with Ali doing that. Um, he also met with Ali uh, once he denounced, That's and right. he he agreed to um, and, and support of Ali during that time. But like you said, after Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali wins the Olympic gold medal, he thought he was going to come back to America that loved him. Same thing and, Joe Lewis thought. And he went back to his hometown in Kentucky and realized things ain't nothing, is, it ain't nothing changed. You know, he still couldn't eat at those diners. He still couldn't shop at those places. Um, and it hit him really hard understanding the, the concept. But one thing about Muhammad Ali that's so great is when you look at Jesse Owens and you look at Jackie Robinson, you know, they allowed their play to speak speak for their blackness. That's right. right. Ali allowed his boxing to speak for his blackness, but he talked about how proud he was to be black. He he, he used boxing to give the platform to talk about his blackness. So boxing was how he got the notoriety. Right. So that the cameras were on him so that he could say what he wanted to say. And he never missed that opportunity. Right. Yeah. He, he was he say. was proud to be black. Things like you can't you can't hit me. I'm too pretty. I'm still pretty as a girl. Like those things of making black look good, right? Making because, it feel because good. Because prior to that, all the images, all the narratives about black people were negative. Right. Like we're ugly. We got thick lips. Mm-hmm. We got nappy hair. Things of that nature. Muhammad Ali wanted to offset that. Yeah, he he embraced that all. And when embracing that all, like so a lot of the, even after the conversion to Islam, a lot of the NOI fruits of Islam were only around black people, right? Because they, they were taught separation, not 
integration. That's right. So it's easy to be black and proud when you're just around black people. You know, you see it all the time. A lot of people may not comment on this podcast or share this podcast because they have white friends that they don't want to rub the wrong way. So it's easy to be black and proud when you're around black people. Ali, you know, his promotion was was white. You know, his agents was white. His trainer was white. You know, he had to be incorporated with white America because that's who paid him. But he still continued, his fans was white, but he still continued to be black and proud in interviews. Um, Whenever he would would speak to fans, whenever he would do these things, he was still black and proud, even in the midst and in the face of white America. So that's one of the things that I really embody about Muhammad Ali is that he never deterred from that that empowerment of of being an African and American, right? Because you see so many athletes, like he made it known very early on, I'm not going to be your Joe Lewis, I'm not going to be your Floyd Patterson. That's right. Right? Because you know Joe Lewis was the the um I ain't gonna say the white man's nigga, but he was the go along to get along guy. Mm-hmm. You know what That's I mean? Right. And still the, got treated like right. a nigga. White <laughs> America, white America loved him because he was gonna smile, not say anything, not talk to white women, keep his head down, just be a good boy, go in there and fight. Same thing they told Jack Johnson, who didn't listen. Yeah, Jack Johnson didn't listen. <laughs> Floyd Patterson, they wanted Floyd Patterson to be the heavyweight champion because he was a good Christian man. You know, he kept his head down, go along, get along. Then when Sonny Liston beat the dust out of him, they said, we got to find us another champion. They thought it was going to be Ali. And so they found out that Ali was converting to Islam. That's right. And that, that fight with Sonny Liston almost didn't happen. Um, the the promotions that was coming out that he was around Malcolm X, that he was a, a, a black Muslim. That's important to understand. During this time, white Americans, well, they still don't really, really didn't understand Islam. That's right. So when you seen Islam, it, it incorporated you just being a black Muslim when the black Muslim was the black nationalist, as they would say. So they'd seen it as right. kind of like the opposite of the KKK. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, so Islam is, is kind of difficult to understand in the aspect of that the nation of Islam and Sunni Muslims or Sunni Islam are two different, totally different things. Mm-hmm. So when people say Muslim, even now, they're associated with the nation of Islam. Mm-hmm. So if you're Muslim in America, you must be a follower of the nation of Islam, yeah. which is not true. They are, they're not the same thing. They're not remotely the same thing. For instance, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Muhammad Ali were not part of the same Islamic mm-hmm. belief, mm-hmm. although they were both Muslims. So Absolutely. And that, that kind of that gets detoured a little way. So you know, once that they're training for the fight, the fight's a day away, the promoter comes to, to Ali and said, hey, you got to d- disassociate with Nation of Islam and Malcolm X. And he says, my religion is more important than a fight. That's right. So they went to Malcolm and said, hey, Malcolm, he's not going to disassociate himself. Can you leave so the fight can happen? And Malcolm X said, yeah, I'll leave, but I'm coming back for the fight. Um, mm-hmm. And then, of course, later on, we see that Ali did convert. Um, there was another meeting that took place that night with um Jim Brown, um Sam Cook, Malcolm X and Ali. Right. Another uh, another um secret meeting that that occurred. But like I said when you meet Mal when you talk about Ali, you know, he embodied being black so much that it wasn't just in America. He was constantly going to Africa, to Nigeria, to Ghana, to Egypt, fighting in Africa. Um creating those bonds internationally creating those bonds but he was also doing something else that we talked about in this podcast during the civil rights movement one of the things malcolm x wanted to do is get the united nations Mm -hmm. involved in understanding what was going on in america and that's one of the things muhammad ali was Mm -hmm. able to do by going there by having fights there he was able to talk about how the black man couldn't do certain things in the United States the way he could in, in other countries. Yeah. And he, he brought that to the forefront to the point where people listen to the point that when he went as an ambassador to try to get Africa to, to boycott the Olympics, yeah. that Africa said, no, wait a minute. We, we try, we tried to get you guys to boycott the Olympics doing the apartheid and you guys didn't. Yeah. Don't come over here talking that. <laughs> and Muhammad Ali was honest with him. You know, he said, I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know that, that you guys were trying to get the United States to, um, 
boycott the Olympics that that particular time. And the president of the United States didn't tell him that yeah. before he went over there. Kind of sent him over there because he was black and he was popular. Yeah. <laughs> kind of set him up. Yeah. And he even mom and Ali said, yeah, they sent me over there to take that whooping. You know? <laughs> and he, he did. He had to take that on. Um, but like Shaquan said uh, earlier, you know, um, after not fighting Vietnam, of course, he was um, he was arrested and they kept prolonging his trial. Um, but he was banned from boxing for three years. No, nobody would book him. Nobody would fight him. Uh, the United, nowhere in the United States would allow him to fight. They wouldn't allow him to travel abroad to fight. Um, he suffered, and this was during his prime years. This was supposed to be like prime Muhammad Ali. You know, he was stripped That's of right. his titles. Um, he was not able to fight, and not being able to fight, he lost. He lost his income. He didn't have any ways to make income. So one of what one of the things that he did was he did college tours, and he began speaking out about his religion and his experience as in racism in America and, and oppression in America. Right. He also did things like uh, there was a riot or uh, insurrection in 1966 in Chicago and Chicago was worried that it was going to happen again in 67. So Ali went in and began to talk to the community about not doing that. And he also, um, he actually prevented it from happening again because they actually listened to Ali. He had a, he had a um, great name and a great reputation. Um, But Ali was just amazing at some of the things that he was doing in the ring but more amazing what he was doing outside of the ring um, for African and Americans. He, he was fighting multiple fights. Yeah. He was fighting being, being black and he was fighting being a Muslim. And in Kentucky, both were frowned upon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he, he, it was difficult. The other thing is, is that the, the mindset of Muhammad Ali, the fact that, for, for anybody to do any research, you will find out where the name Cassius Marcellus Clay. Mm-hmm. And if you're like us, you get into black history, we know the original mm-hmm. Marcellus Clay, uh, Cassius Marcellus Clay, yeah. who was an abolitionist mm-hmm. in Kentucky, who ended up going to the House of Representatives and passing all on a lot of bills to help kind of alleviate some of the, the, the issues that blacks were going through during that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, he... He, uh, one of his one a former slave that knew about these things that this abolitionist did named his son um, after him mm-hmm. because he did great things. He, this guy his his daughters even went on to be activists for women's rights. And then um, Cassius Clay, Cassius Marcellus Clay, named his son which ultimately Muhammad Ali, the same name. Uh So Muhammad Ali, knowing all that, said, listen, just because the slave owner freed his slaves and just because he did great things for or supposedly great things for black people don't mean that I need to have my ancestors hidden and unknown. That's a name that was given to me. I didn't choose it. I don't want it. It doesn't represent me. I don't represent the things that abolitionists represented. He still was white. And he yeah. said, as, even though he doesn't know it, he still was an embodiment of white supremacy. Yeah. And somebody asked him, said, well, why would you say that? He said, because he thought he could do all those things to help black people because he was white. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ali is also uh, considered one of the spiritual fathers of rap music. You know, if you go back and you and you listen to him talk about before fights and the poems that he was reading, you know, this is before rap music started. But it's um, considered like a pioneer spiritual father of a rap music. But one of the main things that I love is he not only challenged white America politically, but he challenged white America socially and he challenged white America religiously. Mm-hmm. Um, one key moment was then the 1971 interview I think he did with BBC where he talked about why is everything white? You know, the angels is white, the, the heaven is white, Jesus, Jesus is white. And then, you know, they call it, a well, he's like, well, everything that's associated with black is bad. They call it a, a black lie or, you know, a, the black cat symbolized, you know, curse and bad luck. Like, you know, everything is that associated with white is good and everything associated with black is bad. But he, he challenged those religious concepts 
again with the uh, Vietnam War. He challenged it politically because he's, he he talked about how most of the people that were killed during the Vietnam War happened to be African-American soldiers who were in the ones that were coming home were still being treated like African-Americans are treated in America. So he talked about all of these things and he really helped change the narrative for the athletes coming behind him because the athletes before him, you know, when you look at the Joe Lewis's, when you look at the Floyd Patterson's, when you look at those people, they didn't necessarily want to upset white America because they felt like their opportunity was with white America. Ali said, I don't care. I'm the greatest. That's right. So if you want the greatest, you're going to get, you're going to get the champion the way I want to be the champion. You know what I mean? You're going to get me because it, at the end of the day, I don't care if people come in and cheer. I don't care if people come in and boo. As long as you buy your ticket, buy your popcorn and you come see me. So understanding his worth, that's important. Uh, yeah. That's important when it comes to athletes, because when you look at the NBA, the NBA at one time probably didn't support Kareem. They didn't support Bill Russell. They didn't support um, those athletes speaking out. But now that the NBA is supporting is because they look at the value of a LeBron James. That's right. Because without LeBron James, none of you owners mean shit. None of those That's NBA right. teams mean shit. And for some place, when you look at Minnesota, Oklahoma City, your your location don't mean shit. That's right. You know what I mean? So without those black athletes, this this whole thing will come crumbling down. You yeah. know what I mean? I, I think that's one of the things that even though Muhammad Ali took advantage of his opportunities to not only make money, but also to inform white America and black America to make people more aware, is that he still did feel some kind of way about being used because of of his popularity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it even talk it, if you if you do more research about that night in Miami really did take place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it wasn't as glorious as they made it seem in the movie. Right. And one of the things that they discussed was Jim Jim Brown was actually down there for another reason. He was down there because he had a friend who invited him to come to this this event. And when he went to the event in Georgia. Mm-hmm. originally in Georgia when he, went to the, when he went to the event he was going to help his friend with the chairs take him into the house his friend said oh whoa 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 <laughs> you might be Jim Brown but we still don't allow niggas in the house mm-hmm. and for him when he heard that that made him feel a little bit about what Muhammad Ali had been talking about mm-hmm. is that these people smile in your face becoming the camera's on because they're getting a check Yeah. when that camera's on. When that camera's ain't on, is, are not on and they're not getting a check, to them, you still a nigga. Yeah. He said, so a lot of people, this is Muhammad Ali said, a lot of people ask, did Howard Cosell make you or did you make Howard Cosell? He said, did you know Howard Cosell before <laughs> I became that vocal, that vocal representative for boxing? Yeah. Did you know who Howard Cosell was? Of course you didn't. So I made Howard Cosell. And he was smiling and grinning, not because he liked me, because he was getting a check. Yeah. He was getting paid. Every time that camera was on and that microphone was in Howard Cosell's hands, he was getting a check. So he wasn't doing me any favors by putting that mic in my face. He was getting a check for that. So obviously, they all, and, and you even, even talked about it off air with Sam Cooke and um, Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. Malcolm X was trying to tell him, look, you just performed. And for all white audience yeah. and did not take that opportunity to talk about anything about the injustice in America for black people. Yeah. Don't you think you have an obligation to do that? Yeah. And he says, I that this ain't no, it's no money in making that kind of music. <laughs> and you know what, you know, what Malcolm X said, have you ever listened to Bob Dylan's song? What was the song Bob Dylan had? I forgot. He had, Bob Dylan had a song that was making money about what was going on with the injustice in America. He said, you can do it. You know what Sam Cooke did after that meeting? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, change so, going to come. That's well, right. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. And we are back. Go to YouTube, type in Mighty Motivation Network, hit the subscribe button. Go to Facebook, type in My Unapologetic Perspective, hit the like button, hit the share button. Go to TikTok, type in Martre underscore S. Go to Instagram, type in Martre underscore S. Follow all the latest content in the black history. All right. Um, you know what else I find interesting about Muhammad Ali? What? 
a couple of weeks ago, well, I have a couple, yeah, a couple of weeks ago, you told me that um, somebody responded and uh, you guys was messaging and they said, well, Muhammad Ali was treated well by America, I think was the comment. Mm-hmm. And if I, I denied that. I don't think he was treated fairly by America. But what I will say is, is that at some point, most of America respected Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, this is the part that's going to surprise a lot of people. Muhammad Ali never legally changed his name. No, no. His name legally was Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. Yeah. He never legally changed his name. In the 60s, you didn't have to. But in the 70s and the 80s, in order to get a check, in order to get ID, you had to have some documentation saying who you were. And it had to have your name, your legal name on it. Yet, he was still referred to by any and everybody as Muhammad Ali. Oh, yeah. And for for some people who say, well, it's disrespectful to even say, a.k.a. Cassius Clay. It's not. No. Because you still, it, it, we talk about this all the time when it comes to names, last names, even when women get married and they take on their husband's last name, the genealogical line can get lost yeah. when you do that. Anything that you did with that original name as lost Mm -hmm. with Cassius Clay, anything he would have done as Cassius Clay would have been lost if it still wasn't associated to the name Muhammad Ali. Because his kid's last name is Ali. That's right. right. Yeah. So, so to have that association was important, but the fact that in most instances, America respected him enough to call him Muhammad Ali. Mm -hmm. So for, for me, if America did one thing good, why he was alive, because we say this all the time, everybody get their flowers when they die. But when he was alive, I think as, as a whole, America did good at respecting him. Yeah. And, uh, you know, by calling him the name that he preferred to be called by and not his legal name. Because there were some boxers that didn't didn't do that. Terrell, were, and he learned they, the hard way. That's right. <laughs> was it Ernie? Was the first name Ernie? Ernie Terrell, Ernie yeah. Terrell. yeah. Ernie Terrell learned. <laughs> he disrespected him. Ali heard him in the first round. It ended up going what twelve? Yeah, 15? he made it. He made it go twelve rounds, and he yeah. taunted him the whole time. Taunted What's my him, day? Beat him down. <laughs> that some people said that that was cruel, cruel. You know, because he could have knocked him out in the first That's round, right. but he made it go twelve rounds. And uh, of course, they even asked Muhammad Ali about it. He said, "No." He said, "Listen." He said, "Could I knock him out? Knock anybody out?" <laughs> he said, "But I want to teach that boy a lesson." <laughs> You know, so he admitted, you know, yeah, yeah. I want to teach him a lesson. I'm not going to say that, you know, I did it intentionally, but it it, it came about during the fight. I wanted to teach him a lesson. You know, yeah. I wonder, I never found out what Ernie Terrell called him after the fight. <laughs> <laughs> Curious to know what he called him. I mean, Floyd Patterson did the same thing, referred to him as Cassius Clay. Yeah. They almost got into, they was the first time in, in professional boxing where the boxers almost got into it. Doing the doing the, yeah. the the news conference before the before the fight, so. So I got a question. What do y'all think Muhammad Ali's, Muhammad Ali's greatest contribution to uh, American society was, in y'all's opinion? I I I'll go first on this one because this one is this is true because this is part of what Muhammad Ali witnessed. I remember seeing an episode. It, of course, it was older. An episode of, I think it was the Murr Griffin show. I think I told you guys this before. Where James Brown was on there and performed Black and I'm Proud. In a, on, a, on a set with nothing but white Yeah. And they were sitting on the floor all around. And he stood up in the middle of the floor and sung uh, I'm Black and I'm Proud. Mm-hmm. And was in it. I mean, James Brown tipped, I'm Black and I'm Proud. Mm-hmm. Head movements <laughs> and then the whole nine in a group. There was number white people. And he still projected that proud to be black image, mm-hmm. which is what Muhammad Ali wanted to do, which is what they wanted Sam Cook to do. Always be proud to be black, even in the midst of white people who may not accept that. Mm-hmm. For me, that's what Muhammad Ali did, is that he was proud to be black no matter what. And in my life, that's what I tried to emulate. I want to be, I don't want people, I want people to know Jerome Battle, mm-hmm. but I want them to know that Jerome Battle was a black man who was proud to be black. I want that to be the first statement mm-hmm. 
That's what I want them to, re to remember me for is to be as being black and proud. And here's the thing. It's not like I had a choice, mm -hmm. right? I didn't have a choice to be black, but I have a choice in whether I want to be proud or not. I right. control that. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to control that. And I think that's what Muhammad Ali did. And that's, that's what I got from Muhammad Ali. I would say, number one is, of course, being outspoken because without him speaking out during that time, do you really get the athlete speaking out during this present time? But the the main thing is resilience. Even as you look at his life coming into being a heavyweight champion, you know, nobody gave him a chance against Sonny Liston. Nope. They thought he was just a loud mouth and his career was going to be over once Sonny Liston put his hands on him. That's right. And when that didn't happen, they gave him the credence to be able to do what he wanted to do and say what he wanted to say even more after that. And then you get the, the Vietnam War situation, and they thought that was going to be the career ender. But he comes back and he gets the championship again. Um, they thought that fighting George Foreman was going to be the career ender, and he extended his career years later after fighting uh, George Foreman. So just in his career in boxing, just the resilience, but not only in boxing, when we, like I said, to start this podcast off, Dr. King and Ali were not loved by white America during their prime years. It wasn't until after that people loved them. And people say, why is that? Because even if you don't like somebody in that, in that moment, it may not resonate but you gain a respect for them years later when you realize that you not liking them isn't going to change the fact right. what they do. So when you look at a lot of these people who done great things in history, when you look at Harriet Tubman, when you look at Jackie Robinson, he wasn't loved. And when you looked at um, Malcolm X, Dr. King, they weren't loved. But when you look at what people talk about in black history today, Muhammad Ali wanted the first on the list. That's right. Why? Because he gained the respect of maybe not with those pioneer uh, older white people back then, but their kids loved them. That's right. You know what I mean? They there were uh, there were journalists that said, yeah, they hated Ali, like the older the older people who would call boxing matches. They hated Ali because he wasn't Joe Lewis. But the younger journalists, the kids, they loved him because he was something new that that changed and revolutionized the world. So when you look at it from that aspect, the respect that he gained by, from white America by being himself, and that's a problem that a lot of people have when they get to national platforms, when they get money, Steve Harvey, they, they, <laughs> they, they do things just for a check, but they lose who they are and what got them there. Mm -hmm. and, and Ali never lost that. He never lost that kid that was from Louisville, Kentucky, who couldn't shop at certain stores, who couldn't, who had to look outside of a fence at an amusement park that was white only. He never lost that. That's right. And he gained, and the more he went into his boxing career, the more and more he gained, and the more and more he was able to be more comfortable with being himself that made other black people being comfortable with themselves, that made white America say, okay, they're comfortable with being that. When you get the hippies and all of that things who who organize with black people, the Democratic Party today, the way that they um, the way that they influence black people or are, are, are ally with black people. You don't get that without being comfortable through your resilience of being black. It's funny because through the research of Muhammad Ali and Kareem, one of the things that I typed that came to me was what does it mean to truly be yourself? Even if you think you might lose privileges by doing what you felt was right, would you still do it? Facts, facts. Because you you looking at a you looking at a time. Let's get into Kareem real quick because you're looking at a time when NBA players they were played paid good, mm -hmm. but they weren't billions of dollars like you see today. Right. Um, and you could be in and out of league very quickly um, if they disagree with your stance or something or blackballed or something because. You know, you, you, uh, but when you look at Kareem, Kareem was raised in Manhattan, but he spent a lot of his time in the slums of Harlem. Mm -hmm. He liked being in the slums of Harlem, whether playing basketball, playing sports, 
uh, hanging out. He liked being around other black people. He embodied that at a very early age. You know, he understood the harshness of the streets. He understood the injustice in the streets. He understood the poverty in the streets. But not only that, he grew up in a time where uh, you get the Harlem Renaissance. He grew up in a time where you get the intellectual black leaders. Um, You know, he grew up in a time where in Harlem, especially was when you seen black worth. Mm -hmm. So he understood the worth of black people um, growing up, but um, that actually led him to wanting to learn more about black history to embody that he um, ended up being uh, a part of an organization in Harlem directed by John Herrick Clark, who is one of our greatest um, professors or intellectual people in in African-American history. Um, But he was there watch riot he's seen these type of things he's seen these stuff going on um but where where really was the kicker was here's this all-time athlete in high school three championships yeah you know went won 71 games straight yeah in 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 college uh in ucla they won 71 he also he went to a uh, high school they won three championships straight absolutely he went to a private school which was integrated uh more so but one day the coach told him when he was playing bad, you playing like a nigga. Called him, yep. And he realized at that moment that what I do great on the basketball court means nothing. Means absolutely nothing. Means nothing. Um, he also was a journalist for that that Harlem Youth Action Project, to where he actually got to interview um, Dr. King, and he liked the ideas that Dr. King had to be able to make America great for Black people. Um, and he, just like so many others, he suffered the rules around him being changed to negatively impact his game. Yeah. To where when he was at UCLA, UCLA yep. they they banned dunking. Yeah, no right? dunking, which incorporates the, the black, him and other black athletes because most white athletes couldn't dunk yeah, at that time. They banned dunking. Yeah. So they didn't want to dunk the basketball. You know, it was they felt like it was an advantage. But you, again, like we talk about that, that sport on sport, athlete on athlete bond that African Americans had. Jackie Robinson won has convinced him to go to uh UCLA. Yeah, to stay at UCLA. To stay, okay. Yeah, because he had went because another friend back in New York had had convinced him that UCLA would be the place to go. Mm-hmm. But then after getting to UCLA, and of course during that time, um freshmen didn't make what they called the varsity team. Yeah, he had to play on so the, he had to play freshman, on the team. freshman team. <laughs> and they would beat the hell and out the of the freshman <laughs> team, beat the varsity team for the first time yeah. ever. It, and uh, still, they still looked at him as somebody who did not represent what UCLA or college basketball stood for, right. mainly because he was black. And he was already involved in, this, in what we call the civil rights a- movement. Absolutely. Right? He was already in those youth groups with the, the young groups for a civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And Jackie Robinson convinced them that he needed to stay. L.A. is where where he needed to be, yeah. and so he he stayed, and he still encountered a lot of a lot of things. Some of the injuries that he he had sustained on the basketball court, a lot of people thought was intentional. Um, he got thumbed in the eye three or four times. Yeah. Um, in fact, one of the games that one of the two games that they lost, um, in that, that last run against Houston, yeah. um, the first game was against I forgot who it was, but he had got thumbed in the eye, so he didn't play. He didn't play in that game and they lost. But then he played against Houston. Yeah. And uh, he was still having some effects of it. But they also had another guy by the name of Elvin Hayes yeah. that played at Houston who was dominant. Dominant. And uh, Elvin Hayes, and you probably know this already, won a championship in it with the Washington Bullets. Yes, he did. You know, yes, back, he did. Back in the day. The championship so, we do. Get. Yeah. yeah. But <laughs> another, another thing to talk about the impact that, that black athletes have on sports. Um, that second game against the Houston Cougars was the first um, televised regular season, uh, nationally televised regular season game in college basketball history. They beat the dust out of them in the NCAA yep. tournament. First too. time. Yeah. First time nationally televised regular yeah. season game. Now they would do the the playoff games, the uh, the tournament games all the time, but not regular yeah. season games. Yeah. But that was because of Lou Alcindor. And Elvin Hayes. We can't forget it. Yeah, the part Elvin, of it was Elvin. Elvin Hayes. Yeah, he was a monster. <laughs> yeah. He was Elvin a monster. Elvin Hayes was a monster. Yeah. He, he was a monster. Um, but again, on UCLA, he was active in protest against um the discrimination against black students and black athletes. That's right. Um 
he was influenced by Ali again. To but he not, was in high school. Yeah. So he listened to um, some of the things that Muhammad Ali said yes. and the, like the fact that he was proud to be black and wasn't afraid to speak about it. Yeah. yeah. So he decided to uh, not play in the 1968 Olympics. That's right. Um, and it's funny that we, this week we picked two people that was influenced by seeing what happened to Emmett Till. Oh, right. of course. Yeah, of absolutely. course. Emmett Till was, was one of the cases that revolutionized America um, into the civil rights movement. But he, one of the things he said about the Olympics was the same thing that Ali said, which was, it was difficult for me to get enthusiastic <laughs> about representing the country that refused to represent me or others of my color. That's right. You know what I'm saying? Um, which we still saying today. We still saying today. So after he leaves UCLA, he goes to the Milwaukee Bucks, which is, <laughs> oh, that's almost a culture shock going from New York to LA to, to Milwaukee. Milwaukee. Um, and they still talk about how Milwaukee you know, I think Giannis came on and talked about how they're still fighting that same fight in Milwaukee mm -hmm. to this day about the racial discrimination that's going on there. Um, but after he wins a chip with the big O, Oscar Robinson, mm -hmm. he uh, he does the unthinkable. So they love him in Milwaukee. He wins the championship. Lou Al, Lou Al said the, he converts to Islam. <laughs> that's right. Changes the Christian, the good Christian name <laughs> to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And that changes again the perception, because again, when you say Islam in America at the time, it was almost anti-American. That's right, black um, nationalists. Right, like, even though his wasn't with the NOI, his was with uh, it's called Hamas. Hamas mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. is what his was, and his was more um, about the Islamic principles, which he said he was already doing at UCLA. Yeah. Somebody gave him a book at UCLA that he was reading and he was like, he was already doing the, the principles of Islam. Yeah. It was just coming out and making it public. When they say Hamas, that was the guy, the guy that, yeah, Hamas. that, that his first name was Hamas. That was the guy that kind of taught him and provided materials to him for him to learn more about Islam. But Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is what we call Sunni. He's a Sunni Muslim. Mm -hmm. um, Al-Islam. Uh, again, that's the time uh, he began to be more blunt in public statements. Mm -hmm. um, he really began to look at uh, trying to take advantage of an opportunity to fight against racism and inequality. That's right. And again, anytime you're this prominent athlete that we look at as the go along, get along guy. And now your mindset starts to change. You kind of want you kind of try to to throw dirt on him at a price again, because it came at a price and he talked about it. He knew right. the, the price that was going to, that was, that was what it was going to be once his moral and political feelings started to change. Um, he said that even Nixon would harass him with the IRS, but he said that it's something that he never regretted. Um, but we see that so many athletes compromise their money to stand up for what's right. That's you know, right. I, I still, I still to this day don't think Maya Moore has talked about enough yep. for giving up the game of basketball mm -hmm. pretty much to be able to fight her fight. You know, Colin Kaepernick may not ever get another shot in the NFL for, for, you know, what he did. And a lot of times, you know, when you begin to speak up about not even just the injustice and, and discrimination, when you just start talking about religious beliefs and black history, right. you're looked at as the villain That's because right. once you start talking about black history, we know your perception is about to change and we can't have your perception change because you're on this platform and you think it, as I said, but Malcolm X said intel independently, intellectually for yourself, you're going to allow other people to do the same thing. And that's not something that they wanted on in professional sports because Kareem carried that, that embodied, you know, you can't miss him. He, he was the, the golden child of the NBA. Um, and I know a lot of people, they, you know, when he was at UCLA, Kareem said a lot of people looked at him and said, you know, why are you protesting? Why are you an activist? You want to go to the NBA and make, uh, make a lot of money. He said, listen, I still have not forgot that I come from Harlem. That's Even right. though I make a lot, may make a lot of money, there are kids in Harlem who are not going to have the opportunity to come to UCLA because they can't dribble a basketball. They're not going to have an opportunity that I have because uh, I'm seven feet tall. You know, there's a lot of people who want to miss out. So my privilege is the fact that I'm able to dribble a basketball. Right. right. But if I didn't want able to dribble a basketball, I'll be still in Harlem somewhere. Yeah, I'm with you. And they, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had that same mental stability and strength that 
Muhammad Ali had, that they weren't influenced by other people. Yeah. Muhammad Ali was not influenced by Malcolm X. He was not influenced by Elijah Muhammad, right? He agreed. It was a connection. It, he, exactly. Yeah. He agreed with the teachings. Mm. They didn't influence him. Yeah. Um, Kareem was the same way. He wasn't influenced by Hamas. In fact, he disagreed with some of the teachings yeah. that was being, as they were interpreting it from the Quran yeah. and broke away from, from the, the Hamas. Because uh, he too, when he went, uh, went across seas, he realized that, a lot that, of the exactly. teachings. Exactly. Just yeah. the same way Malcolm X did yeah. eventually before he converted and to Al-Islam and changed his name, right? Mm -hmm. To Malik El-Shabazz. Um, but also, Kareem met Malcolm X and, and talking to Malcolm X and Malcolm X invited him to come, you know, come, come, come up to the masjid in, in Chicago. And he refused because he realized we don't believe the same thing. Yeah. Right. So he wasn't even, imagine telling Malcolm X no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is a guy who at the time, Malcolm X was one of the, the most powerful black men in America, probably one of the most powerful men in America, period. Mm -hmm. And you're telling them no. So Kareem was very strong-willed and strong-minded to not be influenced by other people. Yeah, He wanted to do things based on his understanding, and he wanted to do it his way, even if that meant sacrificing um, money, mm -hmm. opportunities, yeah. or whatever. He was going to do it. Um, same, same thing that Muhammad Ali did. Yeah. And actually, while still in the NBA, he began writing books that celebrated black history. I believe he has the documentary that came out or coming out about African-Americans that participated in the Revolutionary War because he was he was a big advocate on talking about black history that wasn't taught in schools. What this podcast actually embodies. That's right, you know man. what I mean? Um, a lot of people remember the picture from a couple years ago where LeBron James is on the um, on the bike. And he's reading the Malcolm X book. And a lot of people went and started reading the Malcolm X book because they seen LeBron James reading the Malcolm X book. This was something Kareem did in the locker room. They say, you know, Kareem didn't say much during uh, to get hype. He would sit over there at his locker and he would read these type of books talking about black history and talking about Islam and talking about black perspective. He would read these books and that created the, the again, created the pathway for people like LeBron James to be able to to do that, to create that influence and make other people want to go read right. these books to learn for themselves. Um, and when you look at that, man, it's just impactful on what some of these athletes is doing. So the conversion to Islam, you know, when we talk about, you know, they're talking about Kyrie Irving now, you know, That's with right. Ramadan and the anti-vax, you know, he was he's constantly reminded about the basketball perspective. That's right. Kareem was a big advocate to say basketball is one thing. Ali was a big advocate to say boxing is one thing. My beliefs is another. You know what I mean? And I'll I'll sacrifice the basketball. I'll sacrifice the boxing for my personal beliefs. Uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, I just want to read this quote from Kareem real quick, and I you'll like it. It's during my 50 years as an activist, I always heard the same complaint from whites. Just be patient. Things are getting better all the time. True, but it's not real progress just because you're getting beat with a smaller stick. People who aren't, who aren't marginalized are giddy about the progress because it makes them feel better. Look, things aren't as bad as they were. They see the glass as half full, but black people see it as half empty, knowing that the first half was probably drunk by someone white before the glass was passed down to us. Absolutely. What we see in the half empty murky glass is the is a black man choked to death while going to the convenience store. A black woman shot to death while in her apartment. The 13 year old shot to death with his hands in the air. The water tastes bitter. Preach it, black man. I, I, Preach I'm, it. I'm with you. <laughs> I, I'm gonna read another quote. Um, in in talk, he was talking about uh, Kareem was talking about um, uh, the thinking behind his name change when he converted to Islam, and this is what he said: 
latching on to something that was part of my heritage because many of the slaves who were bought here were Muslims. My family was brought to America by a French planter named Alcindor who came here from Trinidad in the 18th century. My people were Yorubi, yeah, and their culture survived slavery as well. My father found out about that when I was a kid and gave me that information. Mm -hmm. I was somebody. Even if nobody else knew about it when I was a kid, no one would believe anything positive that you could say about me or people who look like me. And that's a terrible burden on black people. But could you imagine the burden on a black child? Mm -hmm. Because they don't have an accurate idea of their history, which has been either suppressed or distorted. And that name change is what gave me that history. Mm -hmm. So you're right. This is exactly what we've done is we've looked in our past to see how did we get to where we are mm -hmm. so that we can know what we need to do to make a better tomorrow. So everything he did, once again, same thing we talked about on previous podcasts, he wasn't doing to benefit just him. Mm -hmm. In fact, some of the things that he did didn't benefit him at all. It benefited the people that came after mm -hmm. him. Um, so a true activist, even though he's only referred to as an NBA mm -hmm. Hall mm -hmm. of Famer. Now, there's an activism award in the NBA now that's named after yeah. Now, yes. yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I think Melo won it this year. I'm going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. We and we are back. Uh, we're going to jump right back in. So again, yeah, like, so what Kareem did was was monumental. Not just for the NBA, but just for the sports in general. Um, and then you have people like Jim Brown, of course, who has worked to end gang violence. You know, he was doing movies talking about trying to uh, end gang violence. Um, he was one of those black activists that was talking about boycotting the Olympics and doing something special during the Olympics. And in that same Olympics, when John Carlos and Tommy Smith raised the black glove, um, the, the fist up, you know, he he actually ended up quitting his NFL career to begin to do more movies and create more opportunities for minorities and movie making. He had his own production company. Um but he was doing uh, great things. He founded the Black Economic Union, which helped professional athletes create black-run enterprises and establishments. And that means a lot because I was listening to a podcast, uh, Draymond Green's podcast, and he was talking to Steph Curry. And he was talking about how older players look at the NBA as soft because they're all friendly. And right. Draymond said, "We well, we're in that ballpark because we're smarter than they were. Because he talked about, he said, we have businesses together. So there may be a player on the team that you may feel like I shouldn't like. But we have a business together. We're in, we're in projects together. We have foundations together. And that's something Jim Brown was doing early on. Right. Creating those foundations to say, hey, look, if basketball, if football, if baseball don't work out, you got to have money set to a side for your plan B. You know, you got to have things in place to be able to move if you retire from basketball, like uh, from football, because back then there wasn't a lot of things happening That's if you right. retired. If you get hurt, there's no guaranteed contracts in the NFL. What's going? What are you going to do with your money then? That's you know right. what I mean? And he began to 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 do that at a, at a very early age um, in the NFL while playing in the NFL, doing these things uh, right. to create opportunity, um, creating. Um, educational foundations for African-American kids to be able to learn about uh, teaching life skills and determination, mentoring programs, those type of things, helping youth inmates through courses. You know, he was doing a lot of great things. Um, and he also, one of his quotes is that I love is, I don't want to become a white black man. That's right. You know what I mean? And another quote says, if people, if black people don't get my helping hand, there won't be any helping hand at all. And there's so many celebrities that make it that say, I made it now do it yourself. Yeah. Jim Brown wasn't one of those people. Yeah. He, he also experienced a little bit of what, well, actually a lot of what LeBron James experienced um, when he left Cleveland. And it's, it's funny because we're, we're talking about Cleveland, the yeah, Cleveland. and Art Modell actually was the, the owner. And, um, when Jim Brown was actually in London shooting, what was the movie? Dirty Dozen. 
I think the name of the mm-hmm. movie was The Dirty Dozen. He was shooting a movie in London. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. Um, it was time to report to training camp. Yeah. And the movie had got delayed, so he was still in London, and he couldn't report on time. And he had already con- contemplated retirement, but he wanted to play one more year. Mm-hmm. And Art Modell made some public statements about Jim Brown not being in training camp. And saying no players above the team, and as of today, we're going to find him every day that mm-hmm. he's not here. Instead of working with Jim Brown, mm-hmm. he just went public and made all these statements. And then when Jim decided that he was just going to retire because he he couldn't afford to be fined yeah. the way he was going to find yeah. him um, for every day, so he chose to go ahead and retire a year early because he he was going to retire early regardless. Mm-hmm. And um, he wrote a letter to Art Modell where he talked about, you caused this. You weren't even willing to work with me. I make you a lot of money just by being on that team. Mm -hmm. People come to see Jim Brown, the legendary Syracuse University running back play. Not to see the Cleveland Browns, but to see Jim Brown. And I wasn't asking for you to acknowledge that I'm just asking you to understand that that's it. Understand that I want to play and I know you're going to make a lot of money if I do play, but you have to have some, some consideration for me and the fact that I'm a human being. I have a life outside of football Mm -hmm. and he refused. And he said he understood at that moment that most of these professional sporting teams could care less about the player. Yeah. Could care less about the player as an individual. Could care less. Mm -hmm. And for him, that's why he made that statement that I retire with regret, but not sorrow. Mm -hmm. That's why he made that statement. He he, he regrets retiring early because he was basically still in his prime, 30 years old. Could have went down as one of the greatest running backs of all time. In my opinion, still is. He's still still in the conversation. Uh, Because of the the number of games that he played that he was able to do. Over 1,500 yards in 13 games? Yeah. Come on, man. That, yeah. that that doesn't happen. People aren't getting 15, 1,500 yards in 16 games. <laughs> yeah. You know? So, uh, it, some of the things that he he's, he did in, in, in the NFL would probably never happen again. Um, but, but more so the fact that he stood up uh, against a lot of racism when he mm-hmm. went and played in these football arenas. Especially at Syracuse. Yeah. yeah and that's the thing. Say. I think people remember the Gail Sayers story a little bit more so than. And, and the Ernie Davis. And the Ernie, Ernie Davis, Davis story yeah. um, more so than they do um, Jim, Brown. Jim Brown. But he was before them, so you yeah. can imagine what he had but to do. But it was like prior to that. You know, he had to, he had to endure a lot um, and then go out there and perform on the daily. The other thing is, just going back for a second to the military, because this applies to the playing conditions that these athletes went through is you got to also keep in, 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 in perspective that it's not just the teams you're playing against. It's not just the location that you're playing at. It's also the teammates that you're playing with. Yeah. It's the coaches that you're playing for. Mm-hmm. The military was the same way. One of the things that Muhammad Ali talked about is you want me to join your military where you don't want me to be a part of your, your, your citizenship you don't want me to be a part of your community and the people that's already a part of your, your unit don't want me to be a part of the yeah. unit, but yeah. you, you think I should go do that. Yeah. You know? And the thing is, this is the other thing. I don't know if a lot of people remember Thurgood Marshall was a part of the department of justice during that time that prosecuted Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. Although he did, he didn't vote. He recused himself on the, um, for the reversal mm-hmm. for on the appeal, but he he thought that Muhammad Ali should win for it too, mm-hmm. you know. So, and we all know Thurgood Marshall and, and the things that he did, mm-hmm. but um, that just tells you that once again, it shows you that black people still can't unite on no, certain things. No, um, we can unite on a party, <laughs> you know. We can unite on going to buy some Jordans on which Jordans we should get, right? But we can't unite when it comes to social injustice and inequality mm-hmm. so what in totality what we're talking about you know you're just seeing when you start to see these professional athletes speak out um you know you're even starting to see college mm-hmm. athletes speak out and now you're starting to see high school kids okay. speak out and take these stances because again that platform is so big 
that it brings more attention to it. That's why kneeling has nothing to do with the military. Right. It's about bringing the attention to to police brutality and to the racial injustice. But they don't. They they were only concerned about what they thought it was about. Right. You know, when you see kids like Mikey Williams, who's now a star, he hasn't even. He's still in high school. Mm -hmm. You know, just bring up HBCUs, and now it's a worldwide content on how do we get more kids to HBCUs? It's the fact that he considered it an option opened up the gateways for HBCUs. You know what I mean? When you see Dion uh, coaching at an HBCU, it opened up the floodgates because with their platforms, they're able to bring so much attention to to these things. And, um even then, they're risking so much. You know, uh, Mikey Williams, if, if he was to post on social media about Black Lives Matter, can you imagine some of the colleges that say, we don't want you here? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. because that that speaks against what we believe in, especially if you talk about those southern states That's that right. you'd like to talk about. <laughs> I'm interested to see how once Mikey Williams becomes eligible for the draft, as well as the 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 kid, the ESPN number one overall football, yeah, that went to um, play with Dion down in Jackson State. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to see what happens come draft day for those guys to see if the bigger picture says they played against lesser competition. Yeah, I'm, I'm tempted to see how that's gonna. This the this the resilience out. part that we talked about that in in this moment. It's not gonna. It's not gonna be appreciated. Mm -hmm. It's not gonna be approved because, of course, those bigger colleges who have so much funding with the NCA that the NCA don't want it. That's right. Because we have contracts, we have Big East networks, we have ACC networks, we have money is is being uh uh is a problem if these kids decide not to come here. I tell you what, partnership which ate with. HBCUs then. And you know, BET used to. BET right. used to show those uh, right. those black college football so games. I, I don't want to watch it on ESPN, on uh, BET. I want to watch it on ESPN in high definition. Right. Let's create those contracts with those HBCUs, even though you really don't care about the student. Right. right. The, NBA, right. the NBA All-Star game did. That was a mm -hmm. uh, HBCU game before the NBA All-Star right. game. But I want them to create those contracts that, that economical, fi financial opportunities for these HBCUs so that we can see Mickey Williams on uh on ESPN mm -hmm. when he mm -hmm. gets to college and we can watch Jackson State on on ESPN or even on primetime yeah. on channel 13 on Saturday. Not just when they plan against one of your teams that make you money. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you do that, which we know they don't want to do, is then you start hurting schools like Ohio State yeah. and Florida and University of Miami. Because now some of those heavily recruited black athletes are going to start going to these HBCUs. Yeah. But that's what we need yeah, in right. order to get the type of equality that we're looking for. So that when Mickey Williams does have the opportunity to be drafted, that he's drafted from an HBCU the same yeah. way he would have been drafted if he went to uh, LSU. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we appreciate y'all. We love y'all. Peace.